Hi, everybody. Welcome to church. Happy Easter to all of you. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. This is the second week of the Easter season. And of course, this is here at Trinity and in churches all over the world, our feasting season. During Lent, we are called, invited by the church to put things down, abstain from things. And during this season, for the next 50 days, we are invited conversely to take things up um, and to savor intentionally really good things, good people, good food, good rest, uh, good wine. And I hope you all are beginning to and have been uh, enjoying all of those things. This is a season for celebrating what is really, really good and a season for practicing hope. Because as we know, just because it's Easter doesn't mean that bad things, hard things, have stopped happening in the world around us. That isn't true now, and it wasn't true when the resurrection happened. Jesus was resurrected into and in the midst of a still broken and a still dying world. That's the reality. And yet, what we know is that when Jesus died and was resurrected, what we believe and celebrate during the season is that he did win ultimately victory over death and the grave. It's finished. It's done. Death does not have the last word. And yet, it is also true that we are still waiting, still hoping for a more ultimate restoration, resurrection, when God will heal all things and put to death death finally uh, once and for all. God is still today telling a good story, even in the midst of things being still not yet as they should be. So that's what we're going to be thinking about over these next several weeks. That's why we are choosing to spend these next several weeks preaching through the book of Revelation. Because Revelation is about exactly that. The fact that God is still telling a good story even when things are not as they should be. It's not because we want to spend this season trying to predict the future or break Bible codes. That's not what Revelation is about. The message of Revelation is this. Jesus is on the throne and his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, is advancing. Even though we go through hard things, even though we struggle. And maybe even more particularly, even through those hard things and through our struggle. That's the message of Revelation. So if you have Bibles, open with me to Revelation 1. I'm going to read together, pray, and then see what the Lord has for us. Revelation 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother, who share with you in Jesus the persecution and the kingdom and the patient endurance, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. 
In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sunning, was like the sun shining with full force. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I was dead, and see, I am alive forever and ever, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Now write what you have seen, what is and what is to take place after this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Lord, it is a gift, a privilege, a joy, really, Jesus, to get to spend time um, in your word, in particular this time with John, to hold his words, his visions of you, Lord, in front of us. And we ask you now, Holy Spirit, in all the places where we're gathered, will you be with us and give us your peace? But will you also, Lord, give us the wisdom we need, the eyes and ears and hearts we need, God, to hear you and to see Jesus? Thank you, Lord, for the hope of this season, for the hope of resurrection. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, there are a few things that I want to say about the book itself before we take some time to look specifically um, at this passage. We are, of course, doing a study through the book of Revelation because there is no way to say everything that needs to be said in uh, 15 to 20 minutes uh, in this book. It's just there's too much ground to cover. And so if you've not yet registered for that and you're curious to hear more, uh, please do. It starts, uh, I believe, tomorrow. So here's what I want to say just briefly about the context. Um, this book, which is in effect a collection of letters and vision, it was given to John during a time of intense um, persecution, or maybe rather on the heels of or on the brink of um, intense persecution. Scholars debate exactly when it was that John would have received his revelations. Maybe it was closer to the time of Nero in the first century, or maybe it was a little later in the second century. We don't really know for sure, but what we do know is that um, it was a time of intense tension between Christians and the Roman state. And I don't just mean it was intense because they weren't able to do things like pray in public or say Merry Christmas. I mean, it was intense because they were, in the most extreme examples, experiencing things like being kidnapped and used as human torches for the emperor's garden parties most extreme examples, or much more commonly, they were experiencing things like just being poor in the Roman Empire, which many of them were. These were people who had, many of them left families, jobs, opportunities for the sake of their faith, and they were socially disadvantaged. They were not winning uh, in the eyes of the world, really by any worldly standard. You know who was winning? Rome. Rome was winning um, by almost every worldly standard. Everywhere you looked, there were lavish, expensive temples being dedicated to Caesar, victories and memorials, or memorials of his victories in almost every city that you would have visited, everywhere you looked. These reminders that uh, Caesar was Lord. And so rightly, understandably, Christians were asking a very important question at this time. What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord in a world where it looks like, by all appearances, Caesar is the one winning the culture wars. Uh, what does it mean 
for Christians to win, for the kingdom of heaven to be advancing in the world on this side of heaven? And that, that question of what does it mean for us to win as the people of God, for the kingdom of heaven to be advancing, that was a really important question then in the first and second centuries, the beginning of the church, and y'all, it is a very important question for us now. How do we know? What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord? So, in an effect, this whole book was written to answer that question. And what we see at the very beginning of it is a story, an insight into a man's life, a particular moment. John, who's in exile on the island of Patmos. John being, of course, a really devoted, dedicated follower of Jesus. And he's been um, taken captive, being held prisoner for the sake of his faith. And he begins to have visions of Jesus. Uh, Jesus comes to John and reveals to him both here in chapter 1 and throughout the book Visions or revelations, in answer really uh, to this question, Jesus will say to John over and over again that even though it may look like the church is suffering, uh, even failing, the fact is, is that the kingdom of heaven is not under threat. The kingdom of heaven is and was advancing through the faithfulness of the church, even through, and maybe even most specifically through, the faithfulness of their suffering. It was what looked like loss to those on the outside that was, in fact, the work of the Holy Spirit through the church to dismantle systems of oppression, to spread love and generosity, and to confront Satan himself. That's winning for the church. And what Jesus is saying, in effect, to John is those things are happening don't let the world tell you or count for you loss what Jesus sees as victory in short so here's the first thing I want to underscore first sort of point Jesus does not promise that we will avoid suffering and loss he just he just doesn't in fact he assures us that we will in fact inevitably experience suffering and loss he does promise, however, that he will see us through it. So we cannot, we will not avoid it. Not just because we're humans living in a broken world, but because we're people who have chosen to take up the cross and follow Jesus. That's what it means to be Christian. So passing through suffering and loss is a given, but we will, in fact, pass through it. And it's not just that we'll pass through it and survive. It's that that is the way to be the most, Jesus would say, fully human, fully alive, and most like him. That even though I struggle, even though I lose or fail or even die, the hope of resurrection, this is really what it means truly to hope in resurrection, is that when I will choose, if I choose, to follow Jesus through those things, on to the other side of them, that when I get there, I will be not just more human, not just more alive, but I will be, in fact, more like him, more like Jesus. And I would say, additionally, that's really the only way to becoming more like him. It's not just one way. It's the way. 
that was the way of John. That was John's experience of Jesus. That was his life of faith. When Jesus comes to John while John is praying, and you have to imagine him, John was old and is on this island, this tiny little island out in the Aegean Sea, purposefully and intentionally cut off from the church that he knew was suffering. And there was absolutely nothing that he could do about it. And rather than just sit there and wait to die, John chooses to practice hope, hope in the resurrection that he knew to be true. And so he gets down on his old bony knees in the dirt and he starts to pray. And when Jesus comes, Jesus does not whisk John away, rapture him out of tribulation, which is a word, by the way, that in this book refers to present and impending suffering that Christians would in fact pass through. Jesus doesn't whisk him out or rapture him away from those things. Instead, he gives him a vision. And this is the vision. What John sees is Jesus standing surrounded by these seven golden lampstands, a sevenfold church, the text tells us later on in the passage. Sevenfold meaning a perfect and complete church. And there's Jesus standing in the middle of the church. John sees Jesus, this beautiful vision of him, and he does what every faithful person does. He falls to his face, and Jesus does what Jesus does. He bends down, he lays his hand on John, and he says, Don't be afraid, John. I'm with you, I'm alive, and I hold even the angels in my hand. You tell them what you see. That's what Jesus says. And John says that when he said it, it sounded like the rushing of many waters. I don't know if you've ever stood in a waterfall and how heard how loud and powerful and peaceful it is. But I imagine that that's how John felt. And so as important as it is to note what Jesus did say, it's important to note what Jesus did not say. Jesus did not say to John, here or elsewhere, John, here are all the secrets for how you can avoid the impending struggle. Here's how you get out. Here are all the codes and secrets for how you can avoid what's coming. Here, John, are the secrets to how you can gain control over your enemies. He didn't say, here, John, are all the books that you need to make sure that you read so that you can be smarter than everybody else, so that you can make sure that you know who to cancel, who to call out, who to clap back at every time somebody says something that offends you or isn't what you agree with. He didn't say, here, John, here's who you need to vote for so that you can make sure you can stack the court just right. He didn't say those things. And I want to say for the record, I know that they didn't vote in ancient Rome. And I am so glad that we can. It just does also need to be said that my great hope, our great hope, John's great hope was not in democracy. It is and has always been in Jesus himself. Jesus doesn't say any of those things because that is not the way of Jesus, getting out, 
gaining power over, separating ourselves from, that is not the way of victory for the Christian. So what is it? John says in verse 9, I, John, your brother, your partner in suffering and the patient endurance in Jesus. This is the second thing I want to point out, second and final point. It's when we're living lives that are shaped by the cross, meaning we have followed the example of Jesus and moving into and toward things that are hard and not as they should be, to make things right. And when we do that, pushing through the hard stuff while practicing hope, that's when Jesus is revealed. That's when he's made known, glorified. That's the story of the cross. John was praying alone in Patmos. No doubt feeling afraid. Wouldn't take much for Rome to come and get rid of an old man on an island at any given moment. So he no doubt feeling afraid daily under the threat of death. No doubt feeling like a failure because he couldn't do anything. The church needed him and here he was alone, unable to help. But he chooses to pray. And when he chooses to pray and be faithful and be hopeful in the way that he can, that's when he sees Jesus. And so I wonder if this isn't the Bible's way of saying sort of indirectly, if we will choose to be faithful and follow Jesus in the ways that we can, being hopeful even when it's hard, that that's when we'll see him, that's when we'll hear him. With patient endurance, practicing hope, for his sake, out of love for him, because we know he's good. I want to read to you an email that I got while I was um, literally writing this sermon, which I thought was fortuitous, if not providential. I was so thankful for it. A woman I know and have known for some time now wrote to me, um, and I should just say that this person has experienced a more struggle in her lifetime than any one person should ever have to. And as a result, she really struggles to feel hopeful sometimes, particularly hopeful that she'll ever know the joy and the love of Jesus in the way that some people talk about it. For her, it's sort of mostly staying the course, you know. And so she wrote me uh, about an experience she had in her neighborhood group, and this is what she says. At some point during the discussion time, someone, can't remember who, said something along the lines of, and that's how much God loves us, or something kind of like that. My innards immediately got all bent out of shape per usual. Then in my mind's eye, I saw myself face to face with Jesus. Before I knew it, I looked him in the eye and simply said, it's okay. I'm okay. It's really hard to explain, but it's like I laid my weapons down. The issue I've had with not feeling his love 
etc., it suddenly became a complete non-issue. There was nothing dramatic about this. It was really simple. He was smiling, and I was smiling, and that was that. This woman, and many others like her, have been for me and with me a partner in the suffering and patient endurance through it. Her story and many of your stories have been for me examples of what it means to practice hope. And I'm not suggesting, even for one minute, that the way that we move forward in the world is simply by prayer and patient endurance. I don't mean that. There is work to be done, y'all. There is work that we have to do, we must do. But it must be the work of Jesus and it must be done the way that he did it. Do we know the work that he did and the way that he did it? Are we sure what it is and how we separated it out from the world around us? Are we sure when we're winning and what it looks like for us to win? the way of the cross, through the hope and resurrection and with patient endurance. That's what Jesus will say to John over and over and over again. During Holy Week, um, it was raining one day, and there was a woman and her small child who came to walk through the stations of the cross. And um, pouring rain, and they were standing out there with umbrellas looking at um, the image of Jesus on the cross. And there's something about that image that has stayed with me that I found so powerful, because isn't, isn't that it? That's exactly it. That even in the rain and all that we have to endure, sometimes you just got to get to Jesus. You need to find the cross. Because what else do we have in this world but that? We are, Paul will say, without hope in the resurrection of all people to be most pitied. But with it, with our hope in his resurrection, we are the victory of God. We are his bride. Amen. I've got a few questions for you for reflection for this week. Either to talk about with your group or just on your own, and then we'll pray. First question. What is something that you're going to take up and intentionally savor for the next several weeks? Is there something, question number two, hard or potentially costly that you're being invited to pass through right now rather than to avoid? And then the last question, what would it look like for you to practice hope in this season? Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. Happy Easter.